1: This is the Investing Power Hour, number 59. No special significance there. I guess we'll hit the big six zero next week, but we're going to keep grinding along. My name is Brett Schaefer, and I'm joined, as always, by Ryan Henderson. On the Investing Power Hours, we talk about really whatever's going on in the financial markets, whatever's interesting us. We typically like to focus more on a fundamental level for individual stocks. Investing News, will hit uh, this week, the media and gaming industry, I got some interesting stuff on Disney's earnings. They're at a bit of a crossroad in streaming, and then there's some interesting stuff in the video game market with Take-Two and Grand Theft Auto 6, plus some other stuff that's been interesting. And then Ryan looks like he has some stuff on mortgage demand, and it is 45 days after the close of the previous quarter. So. It is 13F season. We have some interesting charts that I'm sure will be fun to discuss. Before we get into all that, Ryan, how are we doing today? How are we feeling as we close out earnings season? I'm
0: feeling well. I uh, We got some feedback, some constructive criticism around my audio. So if you've hated it up until this point and not said anything, we fixed it hopefully i've gotten my microphone and so hopefully my audio is better uh but no it's uh i'm i'm good i
1: and let kinda... us know if it's still not better because sometimes it's hard to tell i thought brian's headset was good but i know some people were complaining or maybe it was just one person that spammed us but that spammer you no, are that, he's helping yeah he's we need helping. that feedback Exactly. Um,
0: no it's good i uh I'm ready for earnings season to be over. I think there's like always that lead up to earnings season. I'm always a little excited for some new information. And then the week after I'm like, all right, I'm glad this is over. It was just kind of, it's always too much numbers at once. Exactly. I've always thought, and you can maybe disagree with me here. Maybe it'd be a good idea to have the companies just not have an earnings season to just report make them have like a make all the public us companies have like a different fiscal year that just kind of goes through 60. So you can just like constantly see the earnings updates instead of one Mm. heap
1: one crazy month. Yeah. I've also thought that maybe we should, yeah, stagger like that and then maybe go through to just twice a year, one half and then full year results. But then we could also stagger it throughout the year. Keep it interesting. You could hit like Instead of having all these companies within one week or basically all the companies within the same sector within one week, you could spread it out, have that sector be kind of, I don't know, it'd just be a lot easier. And to, to be honest, the reason they do it, how they do it is for the media programs. That's the only reason they have it to make it so um, right, you know, for CNBC, Bloomberg and stuff like that. And this would make it even better because in that earning season, it isn't even a season. It's just constantly going just at a steady drip.
0: Have you been reading or consuming any entertainment that has caught your eye lately?
1: Why do you ask? Uh, let's see. I mean, I've been watching a lot of sports lately to be honest.
0: Yeah. Tis, tis. You should be Why? rereading the intelligent investor every week. <laughs> yeah. If, if, yeah you're really, exactly. if you're really dedicated to the game.
1: No, if you're true, if you're actually dedicated, true diehards read security analysis yeah cover, cover to cover right. that's going to be useful in modern times
0: the uh what do you, no, ask? Did I, you ask i was did just you asking so you would ask yeah I, I you know when you ask somebody a question in hopes that they just reciprocate
1: the same question the uh, uh that happens on data guys you, you know yeah. yeah the success rate on that's quite low
0: anyway i uh I recently read so I listened to an interview with Todd Combs the I Am Home or whatever one and he mentioned a book called Killers of the Flower Moon I believe it's what it's called probably the best book I've read in the last 2 years All really right. good it's being uh they're making a movie about it right now it's in production Leo DiCaprio's in it really good so that's i heard the it's three and a half
1: hours though that's the, the movie yeah gotta get those editors in there hopefully the book's, the
0: book's kind of a short read it's only like 300 pages so uh i really what, what's it about the book um the osage native american tribe uh had basically they lived on this what everyone thought was kind of pointless land they moved there cuz settlers kind of kept coming in and kicking them out so they moved there they acquired they technically purchased the land from the government for like some crazy low price because everyone just thought it was just this horrible land they went, wanted to go somewhere where no one was uh going to come in and try to kick them out again turns out it was on like one of the best oil reservoirs or whatever in the US and so they were uh the that that town i i think it's called like Pahuska or something um was the richest town in the world on a gdp per capita or maybe it was like a net worth per capita basis for like in the early 1900s apparently and then suddenly like slowly they started getting like murdered um a number of cases Like there was 24 cited cases, but the rumors are that there was really hundreds of cases that weren't that went unreported. And then this was like the formation of the FBI came in, stepped in. It has nothing to do with investing, so I'm sorry if I'm boring people that were hoping for (laughs) some more mortgage talk. But uh, yeah, and it's kind of like this investigative book.
1: Yeah, don't uh, Um, yeah, don't spoil the whole thing. The uh, entertaining sounds good. Yeah, all right, maybe there you go for any listeners' recommendation. What's it called? Flower Moon?
0: Killers of the Killer. Flower Moon.
1: Wave. All
0: right.
1: But Sounds good. Inter- you know, the early oil industry is always interesting. Um, yeah. Maybe, maybe you have to read it before watching. Yeah. have to read it before watching the movie.
0: Anyway, um, I also listened to an interview recently with John Rotanti on the Acquires podcast. Did you listen to that one? John Rotanti
1: on the Acquires? Yeah. Oh, Acquire. I, I was going to say, I thought you meant Acquired. Um, no, uh, no. no. Yeah, yeah, Toby. I don't know. Uh, the the, the Toby and Jake won Value After Hours. Yeah, I saw that he was on there. I haven't watched it, but I have it on my queue. I got to say that I was listening to the, on a different show called Acquired with uh, the the Spotify CEO. So yeah, but I saw that's in my queue. Uh, excited to see some of our friends on Finn getting to the big time on Value After Hours, huh? Yeah. it's uh, It was entertaining. It's an yeah.
0: entertaining listen. Um well, how's the, how the Daniel Eck interview?
1: Same old stuff you're not talking about so far. I haven't listened to the old whole thing, but I think they'll probably try to ask some good questions at least because I think at least from their perspective, they're a big podcast. And hopefully throughout the episode they'll ask questions that people actually care about unlike the uh investing analysts who don't actually seem to understand the market uh too well but yeah i think i think it's good you know i don't
0: know all, all right. right should we topics the <laughs> same we're, we're back all right. how's the housing panic that that just isn't
1: yeah you want to uh, hit yours first
0: sure this is just i you know what i can't tell whether people like this or not i we've made a whatever a tick like a youtube short about like the housing crisis or whatever total engagement bait works great people oh it great did, responses. Really? yeah it's probably nice. our best one just because it like gets so much i don't know everyone everyone has like some anecdotal take on the housing oh, market yeah. uh
1: either, either they're super bullish or super bearish and you can tell whether they're bearish when they're frustrated like us about housing affordability or you're bullish when you have skin in the game
0: with yeah. the housing market <laughs> anyway um i think michael burry called it like he said it's like watching a slow plane crash and i think that's maybe an app description so i guess new data came out just kind of around uh affordability so i've got this chart here let me can i show my screen oh
1: yeah let me, cool. let me, yeah, let me uh do you have access You should have access now Okay. people are uh God, i know people hate No, this you gotta describe the yeah. the audio you'll be able to describe it. We always try to, that's a rule now is to make charts that are easily described for the audio. Um, but I think it's fine. I've listened to I've, I've re-listened, you know, watch, watch some film <laughs> like, like an athlete. Right.
0: Yeah. Okay. So this should be fairly easy to describe. This is data from the federal reserve bank of Atlanta, and it's basically just a chart that is, it's the share of income needed to cover housing costs. So, the percentage of the median family's income required for housing at modern affordability levels. And it's up to, I believe, 39% of one's income right now on average to cover housing costs. That is the highest level since 2006, 2007, basically pre bubble, pre GFC. Um, there's some more quotes. This was from Charlie Biello, I think is his name. Um, He says, and this is really just kind of staggering to think about. He says, in January of 2021, the 30-year mortgage rate was 2.65%. An average new home price in the US was $401,700. So $400,000 home price, 2.65% 30-year mortgage. Today, two years and four months later, the 30-year mortgage rate is 5.23%. So more than double. And the average new home price is $570,000. Yeah. There are currently more realtors in the US than single family homes available
1: for sale. That's a tough, I think that's a tough job to have right now. I would not want to be a real estate agent.
0: I don't know uh that was that was I saw Toby uh Tobias Carlisle mentioned that but applic- mortgage application is apparently at a twenty two year low I don't think that's all that surprising um it's just a matter of whether or not people can afford it you're not gonna uh apply for a mortgage if you know you can't afford it um twenty one percent lower than a year ago that was lower than the year prior it's I don't see how, but at the same time, such low inventory, I don't see how, I guess, I go through my, like, I think once a month, I go through this like thought process where I say, okay, no one can afford a home or significantly less people can afford a home. Obviously, prices have to come down to match demand. But that, like that quote, more realtors in the U.S. than single-family homes, there's no supply. So is it more just a matter of people sitting on their houses waiting for better bids?
1: I think they're bag holders, but maybe I'm biased. I think it's already starting to happen because there was, unless you already mentioned it, I'll mention it again. There was a chart that came out this morning uh, from that same account. I don't think, well, he didn't come up with the data, but he always posts that, uh, Charlie can pronounces pronounce his last name correctly, Bellello, uh, where home prices are officially falling down two percent year over year. Now we are lapping the ultimate kind of mini bubble, maybe bigger bubble, we'll never know, in early 2022. So it's happening, but it's slow. I wonder if it's gonna continue. But what I think the most interesting thing to me, and there's a great substack from this, I believe it's a long time housing analyst. Uh, I think it's Bill McBride, I think is his name. Either way, look it up. Uh, It's called, actually, I'm going to confirm the name of it right now for anyone that's interested. He does a lot of free stuff. Yeah, calculated risk real estate news. You'll be able to find it super easily. Yeah, Bill McBride. He had a chart earlier this week that he sent out on his newsletter outlining that multifamily uh, residential real estate. So anything, I believe it was with two or more. And it could have been five or more, but either way, that kind of just says, you know, large apartment buildings or small apartment buildings or condos or stuff like that. Works in progress was, I believe, at 1.4 million units, which is at an all-time high, not set, or not, maybe I think it was the high not set since 19 like 72. It's much higher than anything in recent history. So I think that could have a big impact as well as those come online. But it, again, yeah, we can talk in circles about it. It seems like housing prices, from the data that's coming through, are falling slowly. Maybe we were kind of in the camp that they should have fallen quicker, but I think to your point, the um, the low inventory, the people holding on to their low rate mortgages, is probably adding some friction to the rationalization of the housing market. W- wouldn't you agree? It seems like this is kind of how, you know you'd expect it to play out there hasn't been any giant surprises if you kind of if you came with information that okay the inventory is going to be stuck there's going to be all these people trying to hold in limbo maybe not call them bag holders but you know keep their not put stuff onto the market
0: yeah well i I don't think it can be a it's not gonna be a crash like a fast crash because it's not a delinquencies problem it's just that prices have gotten so stretched that it's an expectations problem that will just take some time to reset, I think. like, Okay, OA, obviously that was a delinquencies issue. That was people buying homes they couldn't afford. That's not really the case. This is just people can't buy the homes because they can't afford them. So it's got to be a reset of expectations. The works in progress is kind of interesting. I imagine that'll trickle through and lead to... Further home prices declines. My take, my whatever New Year's take, my bold prediction was minus 10% median I home think, price. I, I think, think we're happen. on pace. I,
1: yeah. It was like a 2% so far. I think you could definitely hit that for sure. It was a pretty easy comp, got to say, since we we're at very, very high prices. But, you know, there's a lot of people that are not predicting home prices to fall. A lot of people just every year say, oh, houses are prices are going to go up prices are going to go up prices are going to go up um but we'll see Uh, see so there's there's our real
0: estate talk
1: families have a lot going on let ollie help manage the
0: mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up like delicious lolly focus pops or lolly mellow pops for kids and for parents try three new brainy chews to help you focus chill out or get energized Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
1: Uh, John, Yeah, what about, yeah, do we want to talk commercial real estate? Oh, we got a comment here about office REITs. Um, I will say we should not talk about that because I don't know anything. Except there's a lot of people that are bearish. That's all I know.
0: Yeah. I'm regurgitating takes from value after hours, but I remember Tobias saying that um, occupancy rates were extremely low. Um,
1: In a lot of major cities, right?
0: Yeah. And I know a lot of people are kind of, uh, I think work from home is kind of this polarizing idea. A lot of people believe that everyone should work in the office. That's way more productive. You're you're not allowed to goof off or waste time like you do at home. There's other people on the side of the aisle that say everyone sh- everything should be completely flexible. I think the reality is 2023 and beyond, there's going to be more work from home than there was prior to 2020.
1: Yeah, it's, it, it doesn't matter. It's just incremental. That definitely is going to affect the commercial real estate. How much? I have no clue. let's let's see yeah we've gone a little bit on real estate i want to do another topic make sure we get all these here why don't we hit let's just do the 13 fs because maybe that'll be exciting Uh, and then we can talk about more comprehensive stuff with like the media and gaming space to end the episode
0: all right yeah it is 13f season that means we You know what? It might as well just be called confirmation bias season because everyone just sees big investors that bought the same thing as them and they say, Oh, well, you know. Ackman
1: was buying Google when we were, so we're smart.
0: Yeah. Anyway, um, let's talk Berkshire, their portfolio values at $325 billion right now. Uh largest holdings haven't really changed. Apple, Bank of America. Apple's the, the a huge chunk of the portfolio. But keep in mind, they have owned businesses that are not accounted for here. Um, American Express is the th- third one. Coca-Cola Chevron has slowly crept up. Occidental Petroleum, they continue to add to. Basically, the biggest ad was HPQ. HP.
1: Um, right. I'm on an HP right now. Although I bought it during their kind of, oh, I don't want to call it bubble again, but their, um, the period where they had a lot of demand in 2020.
0: Yeah. Apparently part of this too, is that they had to integrate someone else's portfolio into the um, Berkshire equity holdings. So don't take this as Buffett's buying this or whatever, but um, I mean, any big takeaways here, they reduced their ally financial stake
1: slightly, slightly. right? Slightly. Yeah, by was, like I think it was, yeah, that, I thought that was inconsequential. Um yeah, Ally. I guess not really a big takeaway there. I love that they own Markel, and Markel owns them, so it's just a closed loop, infinite loop of uh, equity purchases. I wonder if they ever will toss out a bid to Markel and say, like, "Hey, you guys want to, you know, come work with us?" It'll be infinite capital, whatever. Not really, but I don't know if it would actually work. And I don't know why they own Markel, but we'll see what happens there. I think it's very interesting that they're buying Apple at these prices because. Typically, Buffett hates buying things that are anywhere significantly higher than the PE ratio of 10. And they were loading up on Apple when it was close to, you know, it was at those depressed levels and people thought we had peak iPhone, blah, blah, blah. Uh, what was that 2016 through 2018 period? And the PE was very low and it was super it was... discounted and they were buying back stock. And now we're at above 20, maybe even closer to 30. And he's still buying. I find that very, very interesting. I wonder what he's seeing there over a you know basically just holding the cash and treasuries right now which will pay you five percent and you have the optionality
0: yeah i mean th- this is something they talked about on that value after hours show with john rotanti he there's like that quote where it used to be buy fine businesses at wonderful prices and now it's buy wonderful businesses at fair prices or something like that there was he was ev- rarely ever har- paying a fair price basically i can't think of a situation where he was paying more than like 15 times earnings for any business except one and it's apple right now it does yeah, surprise me super that interesting. may have been part of the other portfolio
1: being lumped on um, possibly it's a pretty large buy though. adding two percent to the position is not insignificant, significant given how big of a stake that is yeah I don't see them su- I'd be very surprised if they were
0: if Buffett was just adding to it here when it's almost fifty percent of his equities portfolio. Mm-hmm. Not to mention they're getting they're increasing their position somewhat through the buyback, which he loves to talk about,
1: <laughs> yeah, they love talking about the buyback uh, the double buyback when the Berkshire is buying back and that apple's buying back it's It's fantastic stuff. I think the Markel stuff is just incredible though they both own shares in each other. Uh I don't yeah, I don't think nothing really big from him. I mean, maybe well, what's the more exciting What do you have next? Bury. Yeah,
0: Burry's is when I mean, He's exciting.
1: wild, he changes, you know, every quarter. So his stuff his portfolio might be completely different as we're talking about this, but still Yeah.
0: Some the largest part of his portfolio right now is JD.com and Alibaba. Both those are completely new positions, if I'm not mistaken. They he has a whole bunch of regional bank exposure too. Um he bought Zoom at hey. basically seven percent of his portfolio now. After Interesting part for me on that. yeah is yeah, in COVID, he literally said, Are we not at peak Zoom? And I don't know if he ever put a short on, but it's it's cool that he's able to kind of whipsaw his uh like opinions on things so quickly kind of tells you how uh how he tries to not attach emotion to his investing philosophy Other, i mean i I didn't think anything was that crazy he sold out a a whole bunch of his portfolio that prison or whatever he used to own reduced that substantially
1: i love the the media would put pictures of him looking kind of you know it's the awkward look and they would go (laughs) Great, uh, big short investor takes giant bet on private prisons, and it's like a such a quick bait headline. Um, and he sold at MGM too. That must have done pretty well for him. Yeah, not bad.
0: Yeah. Anyway, his is always entertaining, but it's also probably one of the hardest to emulate because I think he does a lot of derivative positions, so that percentage of the portfolio might not be entirely accurate. The other one that I always find a little more interesting is. Chuck Accry. Um Ackrey is very much a quality guy, looks for just the highest quality businesses he can. Um he's adding to MasterCard, which is already, slightly. That was yeah, about 20% of his portfolio, 19%. The only other one that he really added to was uh Brookfield, which I've irritated with the Brookfield complex. And then he reduced his CarMax stake. Was there anything from any of these 13 F's where you said, Hmm, that's interesting. I might look into that more.
1: Nah, nah. First off, Acri, I believe does not run anything anymore, but it's that whatever. Same philosophy uh, with the that disciples. Team. Yeah. I think Acri is interesting when they take a new position. That isn't a starter position. That's the only time I'm really interested. I guess CarMax was interesting. Maybe they, I don't know what they saw there. It seems like, I guess, CarMax is somewhat similar to Carvana. I'm guessing a little bit uh, more well-run uh, without looking at it, but it could still be hitting that wall with used car prices. Maybe they saw that. I think Brookfield possibly could be a spin-out, because I know they have Brookfield. There was, I don't follow the company closely, but there was Brookfield Asset Management, and they spun out Brookfield Corp. Again, I don't know what happened there so maybe that was seen in the 13F but either way they have a sizable chunk of the portfolio in that at 5%. I think what interests me with Acre is if you look at their previous um let's see basically they you know they had a bet on like okay the car, the payment providers the, the excuse me the payment rails fees and Mastercard they also have Moody's just a separate bet they also have American Tower, which should well. And those have been their long term bets from, say, 10, 15 years ago that have worked out and really driven the portfolio returns. But it seems recently they're trying to take pretty big positions in the private equity companies. They have a sizable stake in KKR. You have Brookfield um, and Brookfield Asset Management. Again, I don't know the, except the
0: alternative uh, asset managers. Yeah, alternative.
1: Equity. Let's just say combine into that. And then you also have roper which i don't think is alternative asset management but it's a bit of a roll-up of again i don't know that company closely but it's a roll-up of i I believe they transitioned to more like software stuff or out of and they were basically they're a little bit of a mini conglomerate roll-up sort of like a Danaher or something like that they also own Danaher as well i find it interesting that they're they have a lot of exposure to those type of companies especially the alternative asset managers because i I don't really I, i don't like the alternative asset managers got to say, it's too much of a black box
0: to me. Yeah. But I think the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding with those returns there.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, flows, flows are going to drive fees and, and then earnings go up.
0: I wonder if at the end of the day, that's what it is really is that these are just wonderful sales organizations. They can just attract incredible amounts of AUM. And they really, like the pure investment performance doesn't matter as much as their ability to drive assets. Um, the other one I find f- interesting is they own Digital Bridge, so they kind of have a little bit of a little bit of a Chuck Ackrey versus Jim Chanos thing going on. Because I know Jim Chanos is sh- short is a short lot of, of the. Uh, he, if I'm not mistaken, he went on and talked about uh, how he doesn't believe in the data center wreaths, and he believes a lot of them are kind of inflating there.
1: True I think digital Bridge. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Data centers, yeah. Oh, yeah, I guess so. It's a tiny position, though, for Acre. 0.5%. Uh, we'll see. I find their position sizing a little strange, I gotta say. I would love to hear more of a... um, Like, what, what their philosophy is. Because it seems like when they take new positions, they're very, very small, and they're not going to have any effect because what's going to drive this portfolio is MasterCard, Bodie's, American Tower, Visa, O'Reilly, KKR, and all these other positions aren't meaningful. So I wonder if they're just tracking positions. I, I, I'd I be really interested to hear their their portfolio management philosophy.
0: Agreed. Uh, I, I don't know. 13 and a half season has been a little boring so far.
1: It's always I also, it, uh, it. I mean, what about General Act? What what if you just buy? You just bought uh, Google. Know. Is that really it? I'm a little soured on Ackman, if I'm being honest. <laughs> the general, the expert on everything. Gosh, I don't know. What's his kind called? Kinda, Pershing, Pershing Square. Yeah. Pershing Square. I think
0: he's just got a god complex going, and it's really kind of cringy to
1: watch. Yeah. Wow, Google up to a find the two tickers, ten percent holding. Wow, we got. I mean, he's like he makes bold bets though. Low twenty percent. Historically, 17%. he's been a great,
0: great equities analyst, great yeah. analyst in general. But it's just like the attitude and the the proclamations via Twitter, and you know he <laughs> woke up that day. Though. That day, Icon Enterprises was called out you know he was just punching air just
1: hey i would be excited i would be too if i was him. all right um next topic Uh, let's hit disney earnings so i think the earnings were kind of as people were expecting but the one thing i want to hit on and then maybe we'll add um, there's another question i have with the parks combining it at the end i'm assuming everyone is aware of the disney business but i want to talk about the D2C business, as a reminder, we've had him on the show a lot, but Alex Morris, Science of Hitting, his Substack covers this extremely well. This is where I actually got a lot of the info and inspired some of our discussion questions. So, first note here in the quarter, they had over $500 million in streaming losses. So, D2C, streaming, same thing, on over $22 billion in run rate revenues. And another note before I talk to the first discussion question here. Is there a UCAN, ARPU, average revenue per user, and UCAN is U.S. and Canada, is up 20% at Disney Plus after implementing their price hikes? However, we have seen a stagnation in user growth. Here's my first question. Should Disney Plus try to be more of a niche offering for families and kids at a higher price point? Or should they continue to try and reach a very wide audience, which seems to be somewhat, they seem to be a little bit in the middle with their current strategy. What are your thoughts, Ryan?
0: I think make it a catch-all. Make it just one complete, holistic, easy-to-navigate bundle where you've got the Disney plus, you've got the kids offering, you've got the sports, you've got the Hulu live. Uh, you're, you're, you're
1: skipping into my, You're skipping into my next question, but yeah, Well, I mean, I where read the, talk about
0: that, Yeah, you know, it was kind of popular news that they're leaning towards that. But I, I think at this point it's easier to just con- consolidate and have one really high value subscription instead of trying to get them to subscribe to different pieces. I, I feel mean, like uh, that bundle, what? how much would you pay for that bundle? Me? Yeah.
1: Um, I don't think I'm the right audience, but not much, but I think the right family would pay a lot. What and if there were the certain, thing, what if, if there are certain sports? Yeah. it would, pop yeah. Me in because I think that's the thing with the bundle. They could make it a, Here's what Alex is arguing. And I think it really makes sense is the bundle shouldn't be too expensive, but obviously should have positive unit economics. And then the a la carte offerings like a Disney plus for a family with kids should be fairly expensive, probably 15 to 20 bucks a month. And then ESPN plus on its own should probably 15 be 15 to 20 bucks a month, depending on how much content they put there. And then the bundle could probably be something like 30 to 40. Um, yeah. when you add in Hulu, I would probably end up subscribing. if there was a I don't know it depends if you can get your sports elsewhere right and that's the whole big question here is do you what's your, the, what do you subscribe to right now well, I mean share the share with the family full disclosure but as you are too as I'm well aware but I Would probably do uh, Netflix, HBO, whatever it's going to be called. Max, I guess that's going to help Disney because that's just very dumb. Uh, But and then Apple, I guess a few. I like a few on there. So if I had to probably HBO and Netflix. uh, You don't
0: have like a sports fix. What's your sports fix?
1: Well, I guess I have access to cable right now but that's the big question because sometimes some of the sports you can only get on cable or the virtual cable providers and ESPN plus doesn't have anything I really want. So.
0: Yeah, I agree. But that's interesting. You said they- the MLS, which for me was a big selling point, but Apple plus Apple TV took it over. Um I don't know. I'd pay probably f- for a family for the bundle. I think, 40 bucks is
1: reasonable yeah.
0: in you can.
1: Yeah. For the bundle. Yeah, uh, for sure. If it's a family and as, especially you have one person that likes sports, most likely you'll have one person that likes sports in North America. Then you'll have most likely the kids that want to watch the Disney plus content and possibly some adults. Other I like, topic I, or go ahead. I said, I
0: was just going to say, I feel like for the families with, kids multiple kids that disney plus is like priceless yeah
1: that's what yeah but how how many of those are there i don't know i I guess maybe there is data (laughs) we could. that's that's some data we could find the other topic i think is interesting is that linear tv revenue declines uh revenue is declining and users are declining and it seems to be accelerating and it's really hitting the operating leverage. I believe the number was like 6% revenue decline in the quarter and over 20% operating income decline. So we're going to see this turn it from a cash cow to potentially like losing a lot of its profitability for the Disney business in the next few years. Here's the big question I think this is even a bigger question than that bundled offering, because that's kind of an easy way to just. Make it a better value proposition or a better, you know, understanding from consumers. Is it time for Disney to accelerate their transition away from the cable bundle using their market power, especially with sports, especially with, you know, a lot of the cable networks, and really try to shift the industry because they always say, like, not really as frankly as I'm going to say it, but they have a lot of control to break the cable bundle if they really wanted to. And I wonder whether the, it's just like they should have, you know, there comes a point where they really just need to make a hard choice here, right? Because eventually this business dies and you've got to break it up eventually. Like, why not just do it now? Get a rip the bandit up. Well, and just to be clear, the linear
0: networks operating income declined by 35% year over year
1: wow yeah even worse than i thought
0: um that's why i struggle to own disney is because that's such a difficult problem to solve and you yeah you could rip the band-aid off and then what all those people well, with cable just don't get espn now well they hopefully sign up for espn plus for a very high ARPU. i know but there's probably a lot of families that
1: don't have streaming well, they, they will get it. They all have internet now. They will get it. I mean, they, they are.
0: I mean, yes, losses are accelerating, but it's their only business still generating operating income on the streaming side or on the uh, Disney, Disney media and content yeah. side. Um, so I don't. That uh, seems like a very, very risky thing
1: to do. Less, less risky than. Less risky than letting the pure plays get, keep eating share? Like, what are you going to just let Apple and Amazon steal sports rights for streaming?
0: There is benefits or there are benefits to them porting over a lot of the ESPN stuff to the streaming. Like, for example, if you wanted to watch the NBA game, I think that's on TNT, but whatever. There's certain stuff that's on ESPN that you can't get on ESPN+. Plus.
1: Yeah, i think that. yeah the nba if there's part of the nba yeah.
0: that would MBA drastically enhance the value of espn and maybe would it would get up. streaming maybe it get streaming to some level of profitability but i would say over the next three to four years if they let linear networks slowly decline and then migrate stuff over slowly they'll
1: probably generate more cash but they might but be I wonder the about position. their Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Is The the long-term market position seems to be the most important, locking that down. And I don't know whatever their contracts are, whether they can break and stuff like that. But my thought is switch over as fast as humanly possible, I guess, without blaring that in bold letters to um, competitors, market participants, whatever. That's my thought. Now, here's why I kind of think this is their best move. Because parks, experiences, and products, which, again, is mainly parks, showed a lot of health last quarter, $16 in revenue, up 19% year-over-year, and $5.2 billion in operating income. I have a question here is that should they use these profitability from this asset to get even more aggressive versus their content peers? I'm going to say yes, because Max, Paramount, whoever, do not have this advantage, and they can take the profits from this. And really squeeze out a lot of the competitors as they make this aggressive push to streaming. But it seems like they're they got one foot, you know, they got one foot in the I don't know. They need to jump both feet over, right? If you kind of get what I mean, and not have one foot in the boat, one foot in the water here.
0: Yeah. I don't know. It's such like I and I know I think Alex is still a shareholder. Um it just feels like there's easier bets to make or situations where like It doesn't it feel like Disney's going to struggle to be like really profitable over the next three five years?
1: Maybe, or they're going to start turning this thing around and generating ten plus billion in cash flow, because that's what it's going to look like when you combine the parts. And if if streaming streaming is successful, and they combine the parts within it, and then you have obviously the other stuff like cruises, then this thing is going to print money. But It's a big TBD on the streaming success. There are so many moving parts right now.
0: Yeah, yeah, it just feels like a big question mark to me. Um, You want to talk Take Two?
1: Yeah, this is a fun one for anyone that doesn't know. Take Two is one of the biggest gaming publishers out there. They own Rockstar Games, producer of Grand Theft Auto, Red Dead Redemption, and others. They own 2K Games, which it produces the NBA 2K franchise, and they also own Zynga, which is one of the largest casual mobile game portfolios or publishers I should say so there's also a thread here that maybe we can hit on if we don't have time or excuse me if we have more time but take two had their earnings the actual quarterly earnings were quite boring they beat their guidance slightly which is driven by outperformance at Grand Theft Auto Red Dead Redemption and the mobile portfolio doing well Uh, Only surprise there may have been the Zynga performance. You could have seen in a lot of data that gets released publicly on a lot of the news sites that Grand Theft Auto and Red Dead Redemption continue to do well. They gave out guidance for this fiscal year, which is fiscal year 2024. That started in April. They called for about $5.5 billion in bookings versus $5.3 billion last year. So again, nothing exciting. But then they kind of did a surprise here and they gave a sneak peek to their financial plans for the next two to three years. And I'm not gonna read the whole um, slide, but they basically said, and you can go check on their investor relations for all the slides. It's very easy to find. Just go to their financials page, look at their quota results, and look at the investor presentation. They say fiscal year 2025, which again is confusing. It's calendar year 2024. They say it's a highly anticipated year for the company. They are preparing big product pipelines and they believe, well, they say some corporate speak here, they're going to take to even greater levels of success. But the numbers here are that they believe they're going to hit $8 million in net bookings. And for any confusion, net bookings in video game businesses is revenue. I know the industry loves to make it confusing for investors. So they want to hit $8 billion in net bookings compared to $5.5 billion in the year before and over $1 billion in operating cash flow with growth in fiscal year 2026. This seems to confirm, Ryan, that Grand Theft Auto 6 and other titles are possibly coming within the next 12 to 18 months. Currently, the market cap is about $23.5 billion. They expect to generate over $1 billion in cash flow next fiscal year. I think the first question I want to ask before maybe we get into a broader discussion on the economics of Grand Theft Auto 6 How do you value a business like this? It seems like it's weird because the market, you kind of like, I thought everyone knew that Grand Theft Auto 6 was coming next year, but when they announced it, it was almost like a Schrodinger's cat thing where it was like, okay, now we know what it is. Now we can buy the stock and it's up 10% today. It's It's a bit strange, but curious your thoughts.
0: Well, yeah, I guess it's a little frustrating. I think if you're an investor, because it's kind of like this weird limbo period where you're just waiting for GTA six, you're basically waiting for fiscal year 2025. 20, yeah, 2025. You're this whole next year, I'd be surprised if the stock moved a whole lot. Like even if they beat earnings marginally or whatever, or missed earnings, you're because really they're not, just, they're,
1: yeah, they're that break even right now. It's not a big deal. Yeah.
0: Although they are, I mean, if you include stock based comp, they are, <laughs> they're losing money, but. That is stock-based comp. They generated one million dollars. I mean, they're losing money right now. One million dollars in operating cash flow for the year. There, there had to be some capex. So, if if it's another period like this, that's a bummer. But really, it's kind of like a wait and see. Who cares until twenty twenty-five? Do you know what? Because the figure they said is adjusted unrestricted operating cash flow of a billion dollars. Do you know what well, that, that generally converts to in free?
1: Oh, it's fairly high. That that they're. Are- I don't know why they do this unadjusted or adjusted unrestricted. It, it rarely is that much different than their actual operating cash flow, and their capex is usually quite low, so it'll translate fairly well. So free cash flow, I would say again, watch the SBC, but free cash will be fairly similar, just slightly lower. Yeah, I don't know. You're still paying what you think. Operating cash flow is
0: just up and to the right from there? Yeah, that's a big
1: big question. That's a big question, yeah. I think its stock is a lot more enticing, closer to $80 to $90, especially given all the other opportunities out there in the market today because you wonder how how, how, how much higher than the $1 billion in operating cash flow they can hit. However, here's the next question. How likely is it that GTA 6 outperforms their expectations my anecdotal evidence, talking to everyone that I know that I know plays video games, has possibly played GTA. They say that, like, there's not one person that says they're not buying this game. Yeah,
0: I think it can certainly beat expectations. It, for some reason, the stock does not excite me here because you're getting there is some adjustments on that operating cash flow figure. There's a lot of stock-based comp. It's A billion is the forecast for two years out. Maybe it's higher than that three years out. You're still paying $20 billion market cap. I think they raised a billion dollars in debt at 5% this quarter. Yeah, I guess the EV is a little higher too. And they just bought, they just paid way too much for Zynga, frankly. It would have been hard to forecast what was going to happen in mobile gaming, but I don't know. I'm. It doesn't really attract me here.
1: But then on the other side, I just ran some quick math. And this is probably around the expectation for unit sales at a $70 unit price, which can maybe go higher, but they'll probably go $70 unit price, 50 million units. That's $3.5 billion in net booking before online recurring spending, which is a good, good chunk so you can see GTA 6 when you add on the GTA online, the GTA recurring spending, all that stuff, the subscriptions they do, in-game stuff. You could see it turning into maybe $7 to, $8 billion, $7 to $8 billion in bookings over a two to three year period, if not $10 billion over maybe a three year period. You look at that and go, like, man, are they are they sandbagging here? Or are they, you know, I guess, you know, there's always a chance the game's not, a fl- you know, it could be a flop, right? It's not guaranteed maybe not a flop
0: but maybe it doesn't have the life like maybe it doesn't have the lifetime sales that gta5 had or like the shelf life is maybe shorter it seems unlikely but
1: yeah they seem to be trying prepping to have the same sort of success here and what do they say um yeah they say they want to release several groundbreaking titles that we believe will set new standards in our industry maybe we'll see yeah and that's but i think the, the most or the most interesting thing there is that they said titles not title so there's going to be something besides grand theft auto i wonder what it is yeah wwe 2k24 i, I doubt yeah. it is the uh it's going to be i doubt it's going to be a vr wrestling game or something like that but yeah all right here's I don't know. uh it's
0: just all forecasts i i remember someone saying like don't buy on forecasts, buy on real numbers. And that wow. kind of like, I know everything is a forecast, whatever, but it's one thing if the proof is there and they're earning that now and they're more likely to earn it later. I just sometimes, I don't know, Some sometimes these cash flows feel like they stay theoretical
1: forever. Also, yeah, yeah, I, get, yeah, I see your point there. But the best investor ever, or one of the best, Stan Miller says, don't, vi- don't envision today, envision 18 months out. So I think you get got to balance that as well. Yeah. Oh, you want to look right. at uh, the, well, here, here's the first question I have. I know we've been talking to Nintendo recently. We had a show on them. For anyone that is listening, go check out. It's pretty recently. we go through the whole company and how the business works, why we like the stock, blah, blah, blah what was your reaction to the zelda unit sale numbers did it greatly exceed kind of what you were expecting because for me it really really exceeded any numbers that i was expecting
0: the 10 million in three days yeah yeah is that the best selling title they've ever had it
1: tie it ties pokemon and usually pokemon is is much more popular you know commercially um yeah, I don't know. Like the first couple of days,
0: I started to see all the buzz, and I always, whenever I start to see that, I think, okay, this is obviously gonna sell millions of titles, um, or millions of copies. Ten million, is higher than probably I was expecting. But the other part for me is like, where else do the unit sales come from this year for Nintendo? There, it, I don't feel like there's any big titles they've announced yet. I know I they always just the existing late.
1: ones. There's, there's a lot of, if you look at the unit sales, what's interesting is I think is unit sales, yeah, are important, but there's also, I'm going to pull up just their digital, digital seller's best list, but if you look at the Zelda, the Zelda one, so, okay, just for context, they're guiding for 180 million software unit sales. Some of that's going to be subscriptions, probably about 40 million of that. Take that off the books already. But 20 to 30 million Zelda unit sales are going to be much more profitable than a lot of these other games. So if you look at their top digital bestsellers right now, Number two is a game called Inside, cost two bucks. There's a Monopoly game that has a free demo, 40 bucks. Among Us, $3.50. Minecraft, 30 bucks. Stardew Valley, Zelda, 70 bucks. Right? And Zelda 70, and they have no, they don't pay out so this. It's all vertically integrated. There's Overcooked, which is $6.30. So again, Good there's game. a lot of these. Games. Yeah, see, look. There's a lot of these quirky, fun, casual games, maybe. That people play mobile on the mobile version, maybe of the Nintendo Switch, or maybe on the the TV screen as well. That I think drives the unit sales, but the majority of the profits. If we look at the the Zelda game, they said they'll be profitable at two million unit sales. They already hit ten, and all the they don't have to market that much for this game. I mean, they will do marketing, but all the, all the you know extra unit sales are going to be pure profit for the company. So I think that can drive a billion dollars. In earnings, and then you have the movie as well. That's gonna hit the majority of Nintendo's operating profit guidance, and then they'll hit their software guidance if these kind of smaller games that really don't mean much financially work. Plus, you have the I think people forget the subscription business now.
0: I saw it was driving huge sales or just huge re-engagement across a whole bunch of titles too. Like the Zelda success was driving success of the first Breath of the Wild. Um, it was the the Mario games saw an uptick as well that might also be conflated with the uh follow-on of the Mario movie, but I don't I don't see how they
1: don't absolutely crush estimates this quarter. Yeah. Here's an interesting note I had from there. I was going to share this thread on the US gaming sales for the quarter, but our excuse me, for the month of April, it's not that interesting. But here is what was interesting from Matt Piscatella at Srana says April US I'm looking basically said video game quick takes. The Zelda OLED had a huge impact and Zelda OLED is the Zelda OLED switch model. May should be fun. Uh, sub growth continues to slow, blah, blah, blah. So before the game came out in April, the Zelda OLED actually drove a lot of growth. And if you look at the charts, they're even better now. So I wonder how much, yeah, you're right. You know how much that's going to affect the month of May seems like it's gonna be a good month for the company, but after this, there's not much left for the next uh, 12 months, right?
0: Yeah, the other thing that this helps with is just the buzz around these titles. Anytime I see a number where it's like 10 million copies sold in three days, it gives me a little more confirmation that we are seven years into the Switch console and they're selling 10 million copies in three days we're going to be, this console isn't dead. I I think this is definitely no, we, and I know there's always the chance that it's still cyclical, but seeing this level of engagement seven years in, I think gives me a little bit of confirmation that we're, we're, this is more of a sustainable business.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Now next quarter sales are going to fall off a cliff or engagement's going to fall off a cliff. Um, yeah, I am worried about their holiday season, but they never announce stuff until it's much closer They're Like the opposite of Disney. So we'll see.
0: We've got um, three minutes.
1: Yeah. The,
0: uh, I don't know. I guess. Is there any companies you've been looking at lately that have your interest? Nah, not really. Would nah, you ever invest in the old. oil business? Yeah, Energy. at the right
1: price, at the right price. Yeah. And um, that doesn't mean a low PE, but you know, don't want to get caught up in that. You, you know what I mean? As a cyclical. I think, yeah, that's it, one of those where you have to trust management maybe a lot, but, and you also want a big discount. Um, I definitely would rather own other stuff though yeah what do you think about this ai double the double bubble i'm starting to call it it's double really um sponsored by double bubble god You're i think it's conference. so overblown
0: i don't want to see another conference call where people talk about ai and it's people that just don't
1: well it's the they don't deserve false. to talk about ai it's somewhat the analyst's fault, but maybe the executives tm up send them a little whatsapp message Send them a little Telegram message. Say, "Hey, why don't you serve me up a little AI question? I got some juicy for you on this call." You
0: know who spent a ton of time talking about AI? Surprise, surprise—the Wix letter.
1: Yeah, I bet. Although, to be fair, they invest in automation a lot, but they haven't been calling it the same AI stuff. Their stock,
0: recently. their stock also took a tumble because of people were afraid that AI was going to replace Wix. Yeah, just build websites for you, but there's not. I don't. There's some friction to that, I suppose.
1: Yeah. I think NVIDIA is dangerous. Not the company. The stock is so dangerous. I would not touch that thing long or short. I mean, this thing, I wouldn't be surprised if NVIDIA crashes 90% from here. I also wouldn't be surprised if it becomes, has a larger market cap than Apple by the end of the year. I would not be surprised either. I mean, they, they the company- wow. so-
0: $776 billion market cap?
1: Yeah, and let's look at trailing revenue. I know we're about to go long, but I want to look at it. Just for the listeners to close things out here. Is that a real earnings multiple, or is it like... Shh, nah, no, no, that they're, they're... Okay, trailing 12-month revenue of $30 billion. Yeah. They have a higher market cap than...
0: Almost than Amazon. No, they're a little less right now. Amazon's kind of rebubbled, re-rated, I should say, properly now that we're shareholders.
1: <laughs> yeah, but okay, here, here, here's what I want to make. Is NVIDIA more likely down down 90% a year from now or a higher, larger market cap than Apple? Uh am i allowed to say somewhere in between no no you can't that's why it's a hard question more like obviously each is a low likelihood but i mean that's starting okay once you start to get to two trillion
0: there starts to be like a ceiling you're bumping into in terms of how much you can
1: bubble stuff
0: i don't know man it's just investor sentiment at that point
1: if they accelerate if the AI. Revenue numbers come in like just bonkers. I could see them just taking off. Tesla
0: was like the ultimate
1: uh,
0: exuberance of an investor community. I don't think NVIDIA is at that level. And that only got up to like, what? One trillion at one point?
1: Slightly, or maybe 1.2. I don't know. Like, think if they crush on these AI um, chips. In the next few quarters, like just crush the numbers. There's no competition right now. Yeah, I guess. I I think it's more like I. I think it's more like about it. Yeah, yeah, You know
0: what I liked? I liked that management team from Winmark for just saying we had a good quarter and then leaving it at that. No talk about AI.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know who had a good point is Coupon. The guy was like, he just said. uh, yeah, I think those things are interesting, but we're focusing on providing value to our customers. And then the analyst is like, okay, next question. No, but I, I'm gonna say right here, it's more likely that NVIDIA is a larger market cap than Apple than down 90%. All right, both are, we've un- both long. are unlikely. Yeah. Yeah, we yeah. We're about a minute long here. That's gonna do it for this episode. Hope everyone enjoyed listening. You can watch every Thursday on YouTube. Uh, typically around midday Eastern time. It changes up depending on our schedules or you can watch the replays on YouTube or listen to the replays wherever you get your podcast. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are general partners at Arch Capital and clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.